Hi, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is a show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. If you want to have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. It also makes a great gift this time of year. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you, as always, for your continued interest and support. This episode features singer, guitarist, composer, producer, Mick Murphy, and keyboardist, composer, producer, David Frank, collectively known as The System, one of the most successful electronic pop funk acts of the 1980s. Having met each other in the early 1980s while working for the disco funk band Clear, that's K-L-Triple-E-R, Frank and Murphy first collaborated on a track called It's Passion. That track took off on radio and clubs within weeks of its 1982 release. The subsequent 1983 album called Sweat included the title hit, I Won't Let Go, and the R&B smash, You're In My System. Robert Palmer's cover of that song also became a mainstream rock hit. The duo's sparse, hypnotic sound was quite innovative at the time, blending soul, funk, new wave, pop, and electronic music sensibilities. The system would go on to release a total of five albums in the 1980s, collecting seven top 25 R&B hits between 1983 and 1989. Among those cuts were Pleasure Seekers, This Is For You, Nighttime Lover, Midnight Special, the theme song to Eddie Murphy's hit comedy Coming to America, and the number one R&B um, and top five pop sensation, Don't Disturb This Groove. Throughout that decade, the duo also composed, produced, and performed on an all-star roster of other artists' work. That includes M. Tume, Phil Collins, Shaka Khan, Scrooge Politti, Angela Bofill, Billy Idol, Billy Squire, Steve Winwood, Michael McDonald, and Nona Hendricks. After a hiatus during the 1990s, the system returned in 2000 with arguably their funkiest album yet in ESP. After another protracted absence, Frank and Murphy delivered their most recent album in 2013 called System Overload. That found them returning more to the original system sound. In this deep dive interview, the guys spill the beans on the system's entire story, including the albums, tracks, performances, challenges, successes, creativity, fun, fulfillment, and even new music coming up. Like many, theirs is a tale of years of groundwork and hard work being laid before they became what appeared to be an overnight sensation. They joined Truth and Rhythm from their respective home studios on the left and right coasts. No need to break a sweat, just sit back and enjoy, and stick around for a little keyboard noodling before it's all said and done. Now it's time to turn on the system. Welcome once again to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, where today I'm joined by singer-guitarist Mick Murphy and keyboardist David Frank the dynamic duo who comprised one of the most successful electronic pop funk acts of the 1980s, none other than The System. Guys, welcome. I'm so glad you could join Scott, me. Scott, how are you? Going? Scott, you thank you very much. Great can to we, meet you. Can we, we call you Dr. Funk? We've got David there, and here we have Mick. Yep. Can I call you Dr. Funk? Hey, <laughs> Dr. GX is what they call me. Okay, cool. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, Mick, where are you coming to us from today? I'm in New York City. 
New York City, East Harlem, New York City. All right. And how uh, how long has that been home for you? Oh, well, New York's been pretty much home forever, but um, East Harlem probably 20 years. Yeah, long time. And David, you're uh, the West Coast, right? Yeah, I'm West Coast. I'm in Topanga Canyon, which is kind of near Malibu and L.A. So um, I and I've been here about 20 years, but. You know, I lived in New York before that for for uh, fourteen years. Yeah. Yeah, both uh, New Yorkers. My roots. I was born in Los Angeles, but my entire family's from New York, so that's where my roots are too. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So um, before we uh, start rolling here, I mentioned you know what a big fan I am, uh, going all the way back to the first album. I was a DJ from the late seventies uh, through the eighties and nineties, and uh, you, you you guys were a cornerstone of a lot of that. Uh, uh, music I used to, to keep the dance floor moving and, and keep the people happy. So it's a thrill to have you both on. Cool. Great. That's great. That's great. Um, so with that, uh, we're going to hear the, uh, the system story. You guys ready to jump in? Yeah, whenever you want. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. So uh, let's start from way back. Um, test your memory banks a little bit. And David, I'll ask you first, if you could tell us, uh, you know, so you're from the East Coast, but just tell us a little bit about, you know, how you first got into music. Uh, wow, I, I mean, I got into music when I was a, just a little kid. And I used to sit at the piano and I kind of saw colors, <laughs> mostly green, as I remember. And when <laughs> I just like bang around on the piano, I don't know why green. And it wasn't money. It wasn't money. It was green like grass. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I got I, I really have been playing music since I was like four years old. And I and I loved all kinds of music and classical music when I was a kid. Um, and then one day a friend of mine had uh, a bass and he was learning how to play bass guitar. And he was a kid that I knew when I was younger who I didn't like very much. And he and I he had an organ in his house and I started playing organ with him and he showed me how i could play like whatever the songs of the day were on organ he said man you should be in a band you, you're like really good you should be in a band so i went home and uh got an organ and then i started being in bands that's how that's the beginning of it very cool so you saw green maybe it was you know like green as in a, a, a traffic light go 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 yeah go that's good that's good <laughs> yeah what about you mick well let's see i grew up in uh, jamaica queens and the town i grew up in everybody kind of had a band like a band that played in a garage or um you know basically like soul rhythm and blues bands so when i was about 12 or 13 my mother's best friend had a son robert fontaine who had a band called the soul shakers and um, I could sing, you know, I, I, I could sing any of the Jackson 5 songs and pretty much any of the popular songs of the day because my, my aunt used to, um, my aunt's a great singer and you're like Aretha Franklin mold. And so she would always put me on the kitchen table and say, sing a song, Michael, sing a song. So I, I got to be pretty good at imitating all the songs that were around during that time. So my friend had a band and they already had a singer, but I went to hear them rehearse and I was like, Oh, can I sing a song? So they let me sing this song. And eventually the singer who was there kind of got, went on to other things. 
and and they hired me to be the singer or they you know i joined the band so that was like you know i was like 13 or 14 and we used to do a bunch of club gigs out in queens at you know these places called like the club ruby and you know there were all these during that time there were a lot of social clubs and my mother was in a bunch of social clubs so every time they would have a big engagement they would let our little band of little kids open the open the show for these big bands like this they had um ron anderson and his band of renown it would be like a 14 piece orchestra type band so from there i just kept being in bands and singing and clubbing and you know i got i really got into it and um that's pretty much my my beginnings and so at that time you're doing uh, just popular songs of the day yeah, doing mostly like R&B, James Brown, the Jackson 5. But my ear was always leaning towards more of the rock style, like more of the, a little bit more crazy rock. I mean, I love Motown, but most of the songs like by The Temptation, Psychedelic Shack, and you know the songs that were written like Barrett Strong, as opposed to the more smooth soul sound. So I kind of was already angling towards doing a lot more rock and singing like soul rock. Mm -hmm. and, and David, what uh, what were some of the early influences on you musically and what types of music did you like to play early on? Well, you know, I've been, I've been actually, I was actually really influenced by a lot of like, you know, Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Chopin and all because I played that when I was a kid, but then you know, as I got older and I started to get into rock, <clears throat> which is what I was into first, um, I would like listen to, you know, copy the solos from The Doors and Grateful Dead and things like that. And uh, many other things where I would learn the records, you know, I'd learn exactly what was on the, on the, on the records on these bands and then play them in my band. And early on, actually, I had a band. I had a band called uh, uh, what was the name of the band? Simon Pure. I guess it doesn't matter now. But anyway, we were in a battle of the bands early on when I would think I was a junior in high school, and uh, we were a psychedelic rock band. So we did, you know, whatever all, all the music of that day, but not really anything that was any kind of uh, R and B. But then. There was only one other band in that Battle of the Bands that showed up that night. And they were like a soul review and they were unbelievable. And there was this girl singer in the band and a horn section. They had a horn section and the funk, they were a funky, funky band. And I was sitting there listening to them and they did Respect by Aretha Franklin. And the oh. singer was named Clarice. And she sang it so well, I was almost fell out of my chair. I, I was like, they're going to win this Battle of the Bands. Well, we won the Battle of the Bands for no reason. You know, no reason except for that we were doing psychedelic rock and we had Glow paint or something on or whatever. And after the show, I went up to her and I said, you should have won this. You know, you're like way better than us. And she said, I hate my band. Can I join your band? So that, was the be that was the beginning of my rock funk combination in my life because Clarice was like was a really great singer and then we started to do more like a combination of soul and funk I uh, saw so rock and soul rock and funk. I've never heard that story I met Clarice I never yeah heard you know Clarice yep 
So, uh, David, you had uh, some formal training as well, or no? Did say that again? Did you have formal training on the keyboard as well? Absolutely, yeah. I had a lot of formal training, a lot of a lot of uh, you know piano lessons. Yeah, yeah. And lots of times when that I didn't, you know, piano lessons that I didn't like taking that much, but but I I continued to take them, and I also took jazz piano lessons and all sorts of stuff. But basically, I just sat at the piano in the living room, like, you know, through my childhood, most of the time, you know, that's what and I did. Mick, did you say you had any uh, training or lessons or? No? no, just like, seriously, a ton of bands and a ton of gigs. Like we, we, yeah. had, we had some pretty nasty funk bands that at a young age, we were able to do a lot of shows and work our way up to doing club gigs all on the Eastern seaboard, you know, like, Newport, Rhode Island, Boston, all over the place. So my education is pretty much in grooming funky bands. That's kind of that's kind of my education. <laughs> did, did you always feel comfortable performing in front of people and on stage like that? Oh yeah, I was I was on fire as a kid. Like I really was. You know, all the bands we had were really great live acts. We kind of, you know, that was kind of what got us hired all the time. Was we really had a, a great show band. So correct me if I'm missing uh, some pieces of the puzzle here. Uh, you can fill them in. But um, as far as I understand it, the two of you met through the group Clear somehow. Is that correct? Or what What were the steps leading up to you guys meeting each other? Uh, let's let's have uh, David jump in on that one. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. You know what? I can't remember exactly whether I met Clear before this or not. I don't think I did. Oh, I think did. that what happened was I had, wait, I, I think I, I, I had one, someone gave me Kashif's number. We all know Kashif. And I called Kashif and told him I needed a, I, I wanted to substitute for him if he ever didn't want to do a session. Yeah. So he was a really nice guy, Kashif. And one day, out of the blue, he called me back, and I talked to him for a long time, and he never heard me play, but he sent me to do a substitute, to sub for him at a big recording session with a group called the Ritchie Family, I believe. Oh, yeah. And there was a guy, and while I was doing that, I was so nervous. But I went and I did the gig, and there was a guy sitting behind the console with the kind of boss guy, and that was Mike. And I looked back there and I saw him and I believe that's the first time I ever saw yeah. you, Mike. Is that yeah. correct? No, well, I can go back further. You know, I <laughs> coming up to clear, Dennis King, who was chief mastering engineer at Atlantic, was my mentor. Like when, you know, through the band days, you know, when I had bands and we were starving, we were trying to get signed. So after school, in junior high school and high school, I would go to Atlantic Records after school and he'd let me hang out because he lived not far from where I grew up. So I would go hang out with him in the studio, see all these different acts recording. I mean, really like some great people, you know, like the Stones would be walking through Eric Clapton and I would just hang out and then I would catch a ride back home with him. So he had a group he was working with called Clear and he got them a record deal at Atlantic. And because he was so busy and he knew me and he had kind of groomed me, he said, Mike, would you would could you road manage the band for me? Because you know I can't I can't leave. I'm always busy. So he, through him, I started road managing bands. So one night he called me up, 
he said, hey, we're going to go see this singer on the Upper East Side, This some singer. He didn't tell me anything about the music, but it ended up, he was, I say Frank Sinatra all the time, but really he was doing kind of that kind of music. And David was the keyboard player. So I said to Dennis, I was like, well, I'm not so sure about the singer, but the keyboard player is great. I mean, he's really he's really good. You should get him in Clear because at the time, Clear was looking for keyboard players. And I think they called you for an audition. And yeah. And to audition and you got the gig and you had to wear the smelly fencer outfit. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so yeah. David never knew I was in a band. I mean, I worked for this, well, you know, I had bands and we were really good, but we just couldn't get a record deal. So I was like, maybe I don't know enough about the music business. So this guy, Fred Petrus, who had Little Macho Music and Change and Luther Vandross, he came to town looking for a band to front as one of his recording acts because it is the records that he recorded as bands, the bands didn't really exist. So he was going to hire my band, which was called Jack Sass at the time to be uh, Peter Jacques band, which was this big, huge band in Europe. So I met him and he kind of liked me and he asked me about other musicians in town. Who were the best musicians? What club should I go to? So he kind of took me under his wing and I eventually ended up, helping to run his company here in New York. And that's kind of where David and I met at that point because he would be away and he would send me to the studio just to make sure things were getting recorded and it was that kind of thing. And that's when I first, that's when I met David in that manner. Right. For, for uh, those viewers who don't know, Clear, K-L-Triple-E-R. Yeah. And uh, they were kind of a, uh, <laughs> a pop disco R&B uh, act in the late 70s did three or four albums i think mm -hmm. yeah but they had moderate success i would say right yeah well that, keep your yeah, body working till you yeah. feel the beat keep your that one yeah. and they yeah. had a couple of tracks that got sampled that were used a lot by west coast hip-hop funk bands there were a couple that did actually better as samples than they did actually on the, the records that they made right so, yeah, so we sort of met through Clear, but we also, you know, there was kind of like a couple other connections there, I guess, mm -hmm. that we that we had. I can I can tell you the, the the one story when I did, you know, Mike said, well, I didn't I didn't really know that whether Mike sang until he called me up. He knew that I had gotten a drum machine, a DMX, an Oberheim DMX drum machine. And he called me up and he was doing a project with with these Italian guys. And we went to their and and he asked me would I would I be interested in in coming along and you know and helping out with the drums. So I brought the drum. He picked me up in a van and took me over to these guys' apartment. And the two Italian guys had a great studio. They started fighting. They started yelling at each Italian. other in Italian. They were screaming and yelling. And Mike. Start, he was, I think he was, I thought that he was embarrassed that he had brought me into this. And I was kind of thinking, what am I doing here? And he started to sing. I was doing a beat, like on the drum machine. And he started to sing. And I thought, wow, I love his voice. Wow. He's, he's incredible. And I, and, I, and I thought to myself, wow, he's got an incredible voice. So that's the first time that I realized that he, that he did that. I don't even think we ever did the project at all. I don't think that they no, recorded it. We left. Yeah. We left. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that Mike was great. And then that sort of set us up for our meeting. And Mike, you can go on from there. Yeah. So so then, um, you know, actually what's great is I think 
David and I were both really busy in New York trying to circumnavigate the scene and trying to plug things in. And so we kind of kept crossing paths anyway. Um, one, one evening he calls me to his loft in the music building, which he shared, I think you shared it with Madonna, a bunch of other musicians or whatever. No, Madonna. No, well, Madonna, Madonna was upstairs, but right. yeah. So he calls me over, he says, you know, I have this, I have this studio time that I bartered and I have this track and Madonna, Madonna wrote something to her, but I don't really, you know, I don't want to do it this way. You know, would you listen to it and see if you can come up with any ideas? And the track he played me was in times of passion. Now, Look, I had been in. It's passion. It's passion. It's, it's passion. passion. Well, in times of passion, it's passion. Yeah. So I had been in bands, you know, funk bands, and the drummer was always the problem. Like the drummer didn't show up. The drummer would show up late. So some at some point towards the end of the funk bands, I had proposed, "Hey, why don't we just use a drum machine like Kraftwerk?" And they were like, "Nah, no way." So when I met Dave and he played me this track, "It's Passion." I was like, this is exactly what I've been waiting to hear. I mean, exactly. It was exactly what I was hoping, you know, that it would be. So he played me the track, and I kind of started singing over it, you know, something about the, the in the chorus, but I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the verses together or anything. So he said, great, we're going to go, we're going to record it tomorrow. So I went home, I wrote the lyrics, wrote the melody, and he picked me up from my mother's house, in Queens in his Volkswagen square back, which was like full of keyboards and stuff in the back. And we went to the studio in Long Island in, where was that studio in like? It Hampton? was ba Balinese, Balinese yeah, Lou studio. Balinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lou Balinese. Yep. And it was on Jerusalem Avenue You're right. in Long Island. Yeah. So we get there probably about 11 o'clock, um, you know, start plugging in. And I don't think, they, I hadn't even, I didn't even sing him the whole song yet. It was just like, what he had heard the night before. So he cut the track, probably took about three, four hours to cut the track, plug everything and record it. And then it was my turn to sing it. And it just came together like magically in one day, like in one day from like 11 o'clock till, I think we ended up getting home in the wee hours in the morning, right? Like Yeah, because we mixed it. We mixed, yeah. we, we mixed it too that day. We actually recorded it. I had been working on the track for a long time, honestly, you know, oh, but for, for like probably a yeah, month, you, you know, but you could tell it was a lot of, you know, because because of what the sequencing was, it was like you could put little pieces together to make these longer sequences. And I could tell he spent like a lot of time creating some of the sections. I mean, you listen back to it now, you can, you know, you really realize what it took to make it. So we get home, he drops you off, maybe it's one or two in the morning. Um my my room is in, is my entire basement of my family's house and i go downstairs and i had a really great stereo you know i had like you know macintosh and big power amps because i had sound systems so i'm blasting this record in the basement and i'm like this is it this is the song this is what i've been waiting for all my life so at nine o'clock i get up i call dennis king i'm like dennis you know i work with david we made this this song yesterday could you make some test slackers because I think it's really, I think it's really a hit. So I said, he says, yeah, sure, come. So I got there about 10 o'clock. He cut three lacquers, one of which I have on display. I have one for you also, Dave. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I have them still. I, was, I found them the other day. 
So we made the lacquers, and I knew two people in the music business because of this work I did with Clear. Well, I knew more people, but these guys always said, hey, if you ever come up with something cool, bring it to me. One was uh, this guy, Jim Delahant, um, who was Jerry Greenberg's, Berg's, um, I guess he was vice president, right? Yeah. And Ray, Cavi and Ray Caviano, who had RFC, which was a label that Fred Petras dealt with because of the group change. So I went to Ray Caviano because Delahant wasn't in yet. I played it for him and he said, oh, you got a deal. If you want to do this, I, I, I'd love to have this record on RFC. I'd love to have it. I said, well, I have one more meeting and I'll come back to you after I have that meeting. So from there, I went to see Jim Delahant at Atlantic Records at like 11, 1130. So he comes in. I'm like, yeah, I want to play this for you because I think it's something really great. He listened to about 30 seconds of it and he says, Wait a minute, I'll be right back. He walks out a door, and back in behind him comes Jerry Greenberg, who for me was a, a big hero because, you know, he ran, he was the youngest president ever at Atlantic Records. I kind of grew up around Atlantic Records and Atlantic Studios. So here he comes in, nods at me. He sits in a chair, turns around with his face away from me. He listens to the record about a minute and a half in. He turns around with this huge grin on his face and he says, you got yourself a record deal. So this all happened literally in 24 hours. So I yep, got on, yep. on stairs to the phone booth. We're talking the age of the phone booth. No cell phones, the phone booth. And it was a phone booth right outside Atlantic Records near Goody Music Store. So I called David and David's like introspective as he always is. He's like, you know, I'm not so sure. I, I'm not so sure about the title. I'm like, David, we have a record deal. We have a record deal. <laughs> <laughs> and true to form, we had a record deal. And I think that record came out like in November, right, Dave? It, it came, no, it, well, it, no, 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 no. No, it no, came it out came right, right. What was, Wait, what I was that, hear, Wait, I'm hearing an echo. It came out within a month. It was on the radio of when we made it, Scott. It was yeah. on the radio on WBLS and in L.A., and all and the was, clubs, like all the clubs. You were talking the uh, latter part of 82, right? Yep. It, no, it was actually, we made it in May. It was on the radio in June. June of 82. June of 82. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, it was a huge club record. I mean, a lot of times now, you know, um, people, they're like, what was the R&B chart number? What was the pop chart number? But for us, it got us to play a lot of clubs in Miami and New York. And we would, sometimes we'd do three gigs in a night. I mean, it was really, yeah. it really came at a time when we needed that boost of confidence, like to show yeah. us that we actually were doing something different and that it would work. Yeah. Wow, that's a fantastic story. You guys must have been uh, beside yourself with the excitement at that time. Um, Very much so. so when you first heard that, can I, can radio, I, when you first heard can that, I, had radio, one, can I always I, like to ask. Oh. What, what, was, Scott, what was it like when you first heard on the radio? Oh, uh, well, for, well, it was a fantastic, it was just a fantastic feeling to hear it on the radio. I just wanted to mention also one thing that at the time it was, there was, there was like, it was really the beginning of that kind of electronic music, which was a great thing for us that we actually, like Mike said, oh, this is the thing I was waiting to hear at the time. The DSX sequencer, which I showed you before, like I took panned around the room and I showed you, that it's a it's like a separate unit. And the DMX drum machine and the Overheim, 
that was like a way of actually making kind of like a you know an entire record like contained that way and it was the beginning of that and also the beginning of a new sound so we were really you know uh, fortunate to be like right at the forefront of that yeah, and have right. the equipment and to have the gear right at that moment you know to get it to to actually utilize it you know then it was a great thing so were you always kind of a bit of a gearhead david well i had a lot of synthesizers but i'm more of like a chord <laughs> i'm more into like chords you know playing music you know, here's my fingers um you know i'm into playing the chords but i'm into gear too yeah i am i am and it was just like mike said it all like came together for us like at a at, at at the right moment and it was it was a it was a great thing to be right there you know in living in new york at that moment when that could happen you know and where if we got the music right it could happen which was wonderful what was there anyone david that kind of influenced or inspired you on the electronic side of keyboards well, you know, um, I was inspired by many people. Like I, I did, uh, you know, I would say George Duke, uh, Bernie Worrell, and they weren't particularly sequenced albums. They weren't in, they weren't done with compute, you know, what microprocessor, we'll call them computers. We'll call it computer music. Okay. For now, even though they weren't actually in the computer, but they weren't actually done that way, but Okay, so Bernie Worrell, I was inspired by all kinds of hard funk. Just like Mike, I was never really into the soft stuff that much. I mean, I appreciate a lot a lot of the smooth-sounding vocal groups, but I was into Chaka Khan and Rufus. Um, that was like a huge influence on me, and I used to practice. Stevie Wonder, Boogie, if I was to say one thing that influenced me the most of my life, it's the bass line of Boogie on Reggae Woman. Yeah, yep. And 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 Earth, Wind, and Fire. I gotta say, you know, uh, the uh, bass player. Oh, what's his name? Um, Verdine White. Verdine White. Verdine. Yeah, yeah, Verdine. Yeah, yeah. Same, same here. It's like even we have very like minds in terms of this musical influence. Now I'm a little bit more towards the European in some ways, like the first Kraftwerk album. I mean, kind of esoteric yeah. stuff that I like blended in because for me. Like funk was all around me, and so I was kind of geared towards listening to a lot of the music that was coming out of Europe at the time. A lot of music that was coming out of London, you know, uh, Ian Drury and the Blockheads, Gary Newman. You know, I was like, I was loving yeah, yeah. All those sounds. Uh, yeah, me too. Me too. I love Gary Newman. Come on, that's like, and uh, and right, uh, right, Gary Wright. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, Gary Wright. Yeah, you guys are right there, definitely at the leading edge of the rise of electronic yeah. pop music, you know? Um, so tell me how it progressed from there in terms of developing uh, your first album. Hmm. Well, okay, so we have this first song that did really well on the dance chart. So Jerry comes back to us, Jerry Greenberg, and says, hey, we need a second single. I think we made a second single, Sweat, right? Sweat was our no, second. No, I don't know. No, no, we didn't. We didn't. We hadn't made one yet. We were working on a couple of the other songs, like Stand Up uh, and Cheer. Stand Up and Cheer, but they weren't. We they didn't. We didn't play those for him. Right. We didn't so play. He, them. he comes and he says, "Okay, I want you guys to make a seven, second twelve inch." Now I had seen from 
my experience kind of hanging around Atlantic that they can like drag you out a single at a time. So I said to him, no, we don't want to make a second single. We want to make an album. And he said, well, okay. Uh, I mean, there were a couple episodes between there where like the time when yeah. they tried to get an Atlantic R&B producer to be our producer. If we signed to the label, we had to sign to the R&B guy, but we were like, one of the, one of the things we definitely wanted, we had to produce ourselves. We couldn't have a producer because we knew, you know, we knew what we wanted, but Jerry said, um, well, how much would it be to make a record? And it was some, yeah, I just, I guess I spit out some amount that I thought we'd be able to make. No, no, Mike, Mike, you said, you said, no, he, you said, how much would you give us to make well, an album? Right. You're right. That's right. And Absolutely right. Yeah. That's and, right. and he said a number. And I think I asked for a little bit more. And he said, fine. And we went to studio. I think, David, we had Sweat, Stand Up and Cheer. What other songs did we have at the time? Well, I don't remember exactly which ones. But we had, but we had, but we basically, we did them. We did, we just made an album, you know, after that. And of course... You're in my one of the, you're, you're in my system. system was the was the linchpin of it, of course. Yeah. So I mean, I think we were also still working on other things after that twelve inch came out because there's no guarantee yeah. we we're gonna get a record or anything. So I think we would like meet in the evenings and kind of work on the songs at the yeah. law. Is that right, David? Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's so right. We night, did. One night I went there. I remember you're in my system, and David would always preface everything by saying. You know, I wrote this, but you know, I'm not really sure. I don't know. I, maybe the baseline's not so good, or I don't know. It's because compared to a lot of the things that were on the radio, our sound was always a little bit more twisted and weird. The feel of it, the drum feel, all that. So he played "You're in My System" for me, and I'm like, "Don't change a thing. Don't change anything." The difference was, I think, David, you had you had the chorus somehow as a bridge. And the ver I don't remember exactly what it was, but I was like, let's flip this around. And I think we wrote You're in My System like in three hours. I we did. Yeah, we did. We wrote it really quickly. I actually had the bass line to the verse. And then we wrote the chorus bass line and all that stuff, you know, just sitting there. We just did it. And then you wrote the, the melody and the words. And it was done in three hours. That song was very quick. And when we heard that, we knew we, knew we had a great song. I mean, I don't think we had any doubt about it. Um, right. Of course, the record company, because they paid so little for the record, it could be a thing where they would like, eh, we don't have to promote this much. So Robert Palmer came a calling through Atlantic because he heard you're in my system in a club in Paris. And of course, they were like, no, you should let them cover it. You should let them cover it. Thinking that, of course, we're not going to have any kind of a pop impact in the pop world. And um, so he covered it. In some ways, it boosted what we did, but in some ways, eh, maybe it detracted. But it, you know, in the overall, it got us a much more worldwide fan base. Right. So, how did you guys actually? You know, you came up with this with the songs. How did you actually uh, produce them as a as a final recorded product? You know, was did David? Did you lay out all the music first, and then make you came in and did the vocal overdubs, or how did you guys work on that? Well, we well, had we had demos basically on cassette demos of the stuff, right, Dave? Yeah, I mean, basically, would you know? I would work. I would work in the studio. A lot of times, the track ideas would would come first, and I'd play Mike a whole lot of track ideas, 
you know, maybe just a verse part or maybe maybe not the whole thing, you know, not the entire track, but parts of it. And then Mike would like zero in on ones that he liked and write the lyrics and the melody to the tracks. And then we would go in and we would make demos of them, go in the studio and then flesh them out and record them and, and do all the vocals and the harmonies and everything just sitting in the studio doing it. Did you uh, change much up in the studio, or you just kind of knocked it right out? Did we say that again? Did we what? Did you change much in the studio, or did you just kind of knock it right out from the demos? That, I think no, I, I saw, that, that first I, album that just went straight at it, right, Dave? I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, we did. We pretty much would try to just knock it out, especially on the first album. Um, you know, just go in and we were pretty sure of what we what we had and what we you know, that we liked it. Um, but we also weren't above like, you know, doing something different in the studio. We did a couple songs. I think we did a couple songs in the studio, like Now I Am Electric, the last yeah, song yeah, on yeah. there. We yes. we we did lots of overdubs and stuff in the studio and did, you know, and then on on other albums, we would we did even more things uh, sometimes in the studio. But we always had a good idea of what we were, you know, pretty, it'd be like, you know, I'd say an average of 75% there, let's say. So that, that first record, I mean, those tracks that we just talked about, that started off the record. It was Sweat, You're My System, and It's Passion, just boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And all those That's tracks right. were long, too. They were extended and, you know, ready-made for the dance floor. So was That's it intentional right. that you made sort of the extended versions that went right on the record? Well, we had, we had like a budget of x dollars and i think that's what i'm what did it have six songs or seven songs on it seven seven, seven songs, songs. Seven. <laughs> so they had to be longer scott hey scott we had just <laughs> you know the gig when you the band only knows six songs so you keep vamping <laughs> on the breakdown <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> so uh you, you felt that you're my system was going to be hit but when it really took off and and that record was selling platinum, and and you're reaching these these heights of success. Um, you know, how did that feel? And did did you kind of have to pinch yourself? Okay, well, can I start with that? Yeah. I remember hearing it for the the first time I ever heard it on the radio, which again, by the way, was within a month of when we turned the album in. Within a month, it was on the radio. We finished the album in I think uh, November. Yeah, that's and by the by the end of November, the beginning of December, it was on the radio before the Christmas, before Christmas, you know, before they would stop the playlist advances. And I was sitting in my car doing I had to wake up at 730 in the morning to move my car from one side of the street to the other for alternate side parking because I couldn't afford a parking lot space. <laughs> right. And I'm sitting there and they go and the DJ and I hear you're in my system on the radio and I'm sitting there by myself, you know, completely exhausted freezing in my car waiting for it to be eight o'clock so i could get leave the car there and not get a ticket and i hear the d and the dj came out afterward i don't know if it was pat prescott or someone on wbls and she said that's the system that's going to be a big big song for them yeah I remember still hear me. hello can you still hear me yeah you're kind of cutting in and out a little bit but no, I got a call, but that's okay. All right, so what I was saying was that Pat Prescott or the DJ, a female DJ, came on and said, that was the system, and that is going to be a big hit for them. 
and I took my car and I bought myself a parking space <laughs> at a parking lot. Thanks for right Pat after Pat. that. <laughs> wow, you're living the high life right away. Absolutely. Yeah, right away. Renting, and I never, and I actually left the car there, and I came back months later and it had flat tires. But anyway, that's okay. <laughs> so, so uh, Mick, for you, I mean, you kind of envisioned this for all those years, right? So, you finally hit the big time. How did it strike you? Well, it was it was great. I think one of the things you left out of the story, the, the big time. Okay, so our first single comes out. And we're touring with Clear in the South somewhere. And oh, right. I'm, I'm a glorified road manager slash get anything done by any means necessary, even if you have to carry a giant Ampeg SVT cabinet by yourself in the mud. So I'm carrying right. I'm carrying this huge cabinet to the bus because the, the equipment would go into the bus. And Dave in the rain. Yeah, in the rain. It's like a torrential rain in South Carolina. And Dave is knocking on the window. He's like our records on the radio and they were playing it's passion right yeah it's passion yeah yeah that's passion. right so yeah in some ways um i kind of was hoping that this moment would come and i wasn't i wasn't so surprised as i was okay let's get ready for the next let's get ready for what's getting ready to come like let's get right. our ducks in a row because things started happening really quickly i don't think we had a manager do we have a manager? No, no we, we had no manager for the first album. Yeah, we had no manager. And also, we were getting lots of calls to work on the records. And I think right after um, the Sweat album came out, we created the group um, Attitude. Attitude. And because the guy, um, Ray Cavian, RFC, was like, man, you should have brought me that record. You know, you were going to bring me the record back. Make another record for me. <laughs> so we kind yeah. of invented this side band called Attitude. So we were working a lot in the studio. And I'll be honest, it was like one of those times, David and I talk about it a lot, like we didn't really take time to smell those roses because we were like yeah. so busy, you know, jumping on projects. We did Beach Street, I think, immediately following yeah, that. Yeah. And, and a bunch of other soundtracks for films, like kind of all within, all within that first year. Right. So to what extent did you guys go out and... and tour in support of that first record we did what yeah we did. did we do with that we kind of well we did we did we did actually go out and tour and we and i would say i we toured for three or four months yeah and uh how many piece band did you go out with four pieces paul chris david and myself right oh here here's another good episode i think this was during um you're in my system because we wanted to go out to L.A. and get on Soul Train. We want to be on Soul Train. Remember that, Dave? Right. Yeah, I remember. So so you're in my system. It was like number 10 on the R&B charts forever. I, In my recollection, it was like 10 weeks. I don't think I'm wrong. It was like top yeah, R&B. Right. So we asked Atlantic Records, hey, you know, we want to go to L.A. and, you know, try to get on Soul Train. So they kind of were very resistant to it for some unknown reason. So we booked ourselves at the club lingerie, right, Dave? Right. We, we actually got ourselves tickets to L.A. Yeah, we got tickets for the band to go to L.A., and then Atlantic jumped on board, and they're like, okay, we're going to get you on Soul Train while you're out there. And I think we did, we did two clubs. We did Club Lingerie, and then we did this other club that's probably no longer around, up La Cienica. So 
that got us even more exposure because we ended up being like pretty much a fixture on Soul Train. We would play every time we had a single out. It seemed like we would, you know, be invited to perform. Right. When, when you guys uh, went out on tour, did you kind of stick right to, you know, the note of the records, or did you guys improvise much? What was your show like? We we pretty much stuck to the to the record, the way the record sounded. Um, Paul Pesco, the guitar player, had played guitar on. Actually, he didn't play guitar on the first album. So I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly how we dealt with that. Maybe he just played a little extra stuff. But, but um, you know, the other keyboard player, Chris, would play parts, and I would play the bass line and a few things. And then we'd also have the, uh, the sequencers running live. We didn't use tape or anything. We just had the sequencers running, and, uh, which, was a kind of a, which was a new thing at that time. A new thing. Yeah. Of course, that was also right when music videos were exploding. So, um, you know, how did you guys approach, you know, that part of your, your new image and, and, and that whole part of it? Yeah. Well, well they, they gave, you go ahead, Mike. I missed, no, I missed what you asked. Oh, he asked about the music video, about, oh. about videos. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, we were still kind of low budget Atlantic. They didn't spend much on us. So I think we kind of demanded that we, make a video for you and my sister yeah. right it was something like right. that. we're like we gotta make and i think it was more you dave you're like we gotta make a video for you and my sister we gotta we gotta do it and somehow they acquiesced and we ended up cutting you and my system's video in Man lower manhattan and then up at bearsville todd rundgren's place or something right dave yes that's right and it was a pretty low budget video as you can you can look at it and you can see that it's a fairly low budget video like a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars, something oh, like that. Probably a lot more than that. <laughs> so was it? I thought it was. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the record was so hot. I mean, it got good rotation anyway. Yeah, it did. It really. Yeah, did. It did. Thank you. 